Welcome, welcome to the How Humans Work podcast. I am your host, Jeff Z, Jeffrey Salaji. So glad to have you here. Season one is afoot, and we are kicking it off by exploring not just human nature, but particularly the facet of fathers and fathering, the impact and the influence they have on the lives of my guests. Hold tight, stay tuned, and listen in because we are about to journey into a series of conversations. It is incredible. Let's get into it. Let's get started. Here we go. Lakshmi Del Sesto, thank you so much for joining me on the How Humans Work podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to speak with you today, to, to share and learn about your father, but also to talk about your professional life in the world of music and healing. As I was looking more into you and, and your story and beginning to discover more about that musical side, I became really, really interested in what appears to be a long-standing passion for music and not just, you know, listening to music, but, but playing and singing and you have such a lovely voice. And as I was listening to that, I, I, that sense of sacred music, that sense of the mm -hmm. sacred in music and the sacred relationship with that, both in terms of kirtan, you know, the, the musical praise singing, the, uh, the devotional singing that comes to us from India and is pretty mm -hmm. well transplanted into uh, certain parts of West Coast and American culture, but also your own creative music. So, um, so welcome, and tell me a little bit about uh, how you got interested in sacred music. I would say it was a very organic process. I didn't start singing until I was twenty. I just took a random elective class in college, and this rather large voice came out. <laughs> There are times I'd be st I'd sing and then I'd kind of look over my shoulder like, was that, did that come from me? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was just such a powerful vehicle. It became a really important tool for me to process and express my inner world. What was it like to find you had a, a, a more powerful voice than you had a self-image of? It, yeah, somehow it was surprising to me that I hadn't really known in my adult life that I could sing and not only sing, but that it was, yeah, it was, um, it was rich and fulfilling to discover that because I think I struggled with my inner life a lot. And there was something about mm -hmm. the power of this singing that somehow is a very natural transformative process that I hadn't really had access to. I did when I was a kid. I, I used to sing all the time when I was a kid. You know, hairbrush singer, singing all the um, the musicals, the albums on like Fiddler on the Roof and The Star is Born and well, and also like Rocky Horror Picture Show. Like I knew every word and sang all the time. So I had that then, but there was a bunch of years that fell away and I had never done it publicly. So to discover that that public piece of and also just rediscovering it all. But there's also a relationship between being witnessed and offering an expression that uh, is another very powerful aspect of being a singer. It's not just singing, singing in and of itself, but then also the relationship between a performer and the audience and, and the sacred aspect of the, the kind of the cave of theater, so to speak. Um, it brings out something else in a person to be witnessed 
so you didn't start singing publicly when you first discovered your voice. I mean, obviously there was some time before you realized that you love singing and you could sing. And when you started to become a performer? Well, it was kind of synonymous in a sense, because where I discovered it was in this elective singing class. And we had to perform in front of the classroom with a pianist accompaniment, which I'd also never done. And then I had always been interested in like inner philosophies and mysticism. And my mother was uh, a kind of a metaphysician. And because I was curious about how humans operate, I had this thought that in our culture, we're kind of, we seem to struggle a lot. And when I looked at indigenous cultures of other parts of the world, they seem to have very little and be very happy. So I was very curious about anthropology at that time as well. And when I discovered my singing, it paired very naturally that I got very interested in world music and world music, particularly from indigenous cultures and, and how that music was used as a part of the culture and how music being a part of the culture was part of the health of a culture and the health of an individual. And, and music plays a big role that way. So I became very fascinated with that. And so that influenced my career path and also my artistic expression path. And so when you were at that point in college, which was a minute ago, right? It just wasn't yesterday. It was a little, <laughs> <laughs> it's been a while since we've been in college. Um, but you, you <laughs> so you had this blend between music and culture. What did you find or learn as you did that? Well, I think the thing I got most fascinated with, the thing I got most fascinated with is how humans across the world use music in ceremonial contexts, in sacred contexts, and how music is used to actually induce altered states of consciousness. And in those altered states of consciousness, we, excuse me, I'm gonna take a minute and clear that. Totally, get it out. <laughs> <laughs> I'm talking about singing and speaking, I'm all, <laughs> Getting rid of sicknesses would be in there too, wouldn't it? Absolutely. So much so. Yeah. The, the Kalahari Kung use music to, and, and healing to pull illness from the body. Yeah, the, the ability of indigenous cultures in particular, but really secular cultures, or, or not secular cultures, but modern religious cultures, every culture in the world uses music to get us out of ordinary states of mind and into a different state of mind, a mind that's like more open and more receptive and able to receive different insights, different thoughts, different energies. And so witnessing that in other cultures and experiencing it myself brought me into the world of sacred music. Um, and that's how I started my path to finding East Indian sacred music and kirtan also. And so you became a practitioner. I did. I did become a practitioner. But not before I discovered my own ability to write music and use music as a vehicle to deliver messages about. So my own English music was a lot of times was a deep exploration of inner states and how they translate into the world, inner states of awareness and insight and heartfulness and awakening. And so uh, there's like kind of like my English 
folk music nomad original music side and then there's my east indian mystical existing for thousands of years chanting side so it's kind of like ancient and modern you could say yeah i think we all have a bit of that right we're all caught between these these more ancient parts of our mind and our heart or soul however you want to describe it and these well we're alive now so true <laughs> and and yeah absolutely true so was it a risk for you to start to write your own music and or was it just a natural following was it was it a was it a was it scary was it edgy or did it just kind of start pouring out of you how did that happen oh that's an interesting question it's kind of both i would say i think anytime we pause and give a big empty space to potentiality the nothing or the everything or the potentiality that in and of itself can be kind of a scary feeling and to trust reaching down into ourselves and pulling something out and deciding that it's worthy of somebody else witnessing is yeah it's on that level it can be scary in the moments of it happening it was sort of a little bit of do or die like it was <laughs> it really saved my life so um being able to do that write songs Usually I would wait to feel really weird about it. So I would just go into the mystery and create the song and, and then feel weird about it afterwards or worried about it. This very natural segue into my father actually was that probably my first introduction to the power of sacred music was through him. And um, when I was much younger, when I was about 10, I had a brief stint of being a born-again Christian and that introduced me to the power of religion and spirituality and people coming together and going into altered states of consciousness. And he soon after that became the road manager for the number one gospel singer in the country at that time. His name was Andre Crouch. And so I had a, a, a deep exposure to these like huge audiences of gospel music and being backstage with all the musicians and getting to see these really powerful public performances. And Andre Crouch was a little bit of a crossover. He was a gospel singer straight up, but he was so well known, he kind of crossed over into commercialism. So the, the gospel that he was singing was was reaching a, a, a very wide audience, including a secular audience. So it was just this big, huge, powerful musical experience that had this intention of something holy and sacred and produced that and reached it for people who weren't even necessarily specifically of that religion. So it just showed me this incredible power of, of music. You become a born-again Christian of your own volition or because your father? I think I just have always been a, a spirited child. I think I've always had a little bit of a hand in the other realms, so to speak. Yes, I'm sure I was definitely influenced by my father. There's no question, but there was something about the ritual aspect of it or the touching on something greater than myself aspect of it or the coming together to feel something that was natural to to my, you know, what I came into this life being. What kind of congregation was it? I mean, were, were people going after the music there? Was it like very vociferous and high energy? 
I mean, it was, I don't, re- like the churches, I remember being in church, but I think what I remember most, because I was young, was these like camps for kids that were really powerful and outside in nature. And I got baptized in the ocean, dipped in the water. It was all very in, kind of intense and powerful. And um, and there was a lot of music like around the campfires and but the the gospel music I experienced wasn't directly from the churches I was involved in. That was more through through my dad's work um, and these big kind of public concerts. And he he took you on the road. No, but whenever it was in town, or we'd drive to L.A. Mm-hmm. or you know, yeah, I didn't go on the road with him. But it was whenever it was kind of local. Like they they lived locally and they did a lot locally, and then they also traveled all over. And what was local for you at that point in your life when this was happening? Where were you? I We lived in Orange County, and then mm-hmm. most of those musicians, I believe, lived in L.A. This idea that music came into your life and your own writing came into your life of creating your music, and you said it saved you. Mm-hmm. And I was going to ask you what it saved you from. And then <laughs> you... you, you <laughs> You know, uh, what, what, what does it save you from? But we started going towards your father and that segue into that that early musical exposure. So what was it saving you from? Hmm. Well, I mean, the easy answer is myself. But, um, you know, we all have our versions of our challenges growing up. I have my versions. And then it's not even just what happens to you, but the person you are experiencing it. So two children can go through the same experience and they they process it differently or they get affected differently. I think I was just always a very sensitive person, for better and for worse. I, I like to think of it primarily for better, but it, it's been challenging to be uh, a sensitive person. It's challenging to be that level of sensitive, but I think I didn't do so great with the challenges that I did have as a child. Yeah, how so? Like, wh- Well, it, it, it generated a lot of, well, we moved around after, so when I was 10, my dad, even though I was influenced by him becoming a born-again Christian, he didn't live with us at that time. So after they were divorced, we moved around a lot, like once a year, once every six months, sometimes two years. Um, but it, it created a lot of instability for me and... Being a new kid at a lot of different schools, I think, you know, along with my father going off and starting another family, and I experienced him starting this other family as a being more of a priority at that time. So I think these created a lot of inner instabilities in me. So I had a lot of insecurities. And yet I also had this part that was always just born into this life, like I said, with a hand in another world. I think I was just born that way. So I think the two, like having insecurities like in the world and then having this hand already that I just leaned into that. And for me, music was a way to interact with this other part of me, the part of me that was a little bit in this other world to begin with. And so created a bridge for me, I think. I've never said that before, but I think it did create a bridge mm-hmm. for... Um, the part of me that sensed other things and being present in this world, in this life, and having something to bring to the world. So it just, it, 
I was deeply insecure, but I could put all of that aside while I was in the process. Like, I would just be in this realm of making music and interacting with life on a more energetic level, on a more intangible, like almost direct, I want to say. So I would just get into these states where, I don't know, it was really beautiful, just singing and, you know, I, I, I teach at a sound healing school so I'm aware of the power of the vibrations of sound themselves and tones. Even if you take that outside of music, just pure tones and those physical vibrations affect the human body and the human psyche and, and, the, um, and our emotional bodies, our thinking, it affects everything. So Do you have an example of that, of a kind of sound that that does that, you know, maybe comparison, like this sound works this way, this sound works that way with the human body? I mean, honestly, it's like, at this point, you know, it's any sound like a tone, just a, let's just say a pure tone, like, um, like, that's just a pure tone. That's, that can be healing for a, a body that because it's this long sustained note. It has vibrate little, literally physical vibrations to it. So I, f mm -hmm. I feel that music is all music is a form of sound healing. It's just these beautiful, pure tones. It can be. And, you know, if you turn that into a melody, then, then there's more emotion involved. So then it hits more levels. So that mm -hmm. one tone. Who, becomes a melody mm. but it's still yeah. all tones that's nice that's it's nice it's all vibrations i'm forgetting my questions <laughs> <laughs> me too that's the very point okay there you go that's right, it right right so it gets you out of your head and into your body that yes. it did for me it got me it helped me that's see mm. there now i can say it it would get me out of i was an overthinker that's for sure mm -hmm. i'll get out of my head and into my body and into my heart and into my emotions. And, and there was a lot of, you know, when I would get in there, then I would discover why I was in my head, which is there was a lot of unprocessed emotions. So music mm -hmm. also helped me process just through those things like singing would help me emote mm -hmm. long held mm -hmm. emotions. Like grief and anger. Yeah. Sadness, a lot of sadness. I would say sadness, longing, holy longing, personal longing, um, grief, hurt, pain. Yeah, mm -hmm. I hear you. And then probably I would imagine too that the music also gave you doorways into bliss and other things that underneath. Generally speaking, that's the flip side of processing intense emotions in general, whether you use mu music or not. But yeah, absolutely. Music is, yes, music is blissful. <laughs> yes yeah. it is i love music um i you know i can't sing well I, I i like to sing but you know i i just my pitch and all that so i appreciate someone who found their voice in the way you found it and you know it's funny I, I, when i was 19 i found uh the phantom of the opera the the musical and maybe mm -hmm. i was 18 but i love the phantom of the opera i was like 
oh my god this is so great and i went and saw it like three or four times and i really wished i could sing like that i mean the idea of being able to ah, create sound that way is just a, a is a is a beautiful gift so those who have it like you are very blessed well um, i let me just say mm. i have to interject it's actually one of the things i teach in the sound healing school is how to discover making sounds and pure sounds and pure movements of sounds that are outside of the structure of melody and music mm -hmm. because everybody has a voice and everybody has a tone if there's certain kinds of tone making and sound making that doesn't require you to be on a specific pitch and it's so profoundly healing and there's no one person who can't do that I believe you. I have found moments where I've been really in pitch. Usually it's on retreat and usually it's more in context where I'm far more relaxed and I am not trying to keep up with a melody. Well, yeah. So you could just like, like what I just did, I just made a tone like, oh, like one long tone. Yeah. Can you do that? I'm not going to do that right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll lose half my right. listenership. <laughs> you you try you try doing it in the privacy of your own home. You just open your mouth will, and make I it. I will. I will. Okay. I will. And my daughters and wife will be texting you saying, "Hey." <laughs> Anyways, I'm teasing. I'm kind of beating up on myself a little bit being playful, but I do appreciate the voice. I mean, the human voice is so amazing. And it's, I have gotten actually more comfortable with my voice doing the podcast. I'm like, oh mm. yeah, my voice is okay. Mm. And, um, you know, cause it's for most people, they hear themselves. And I, I did when I first heard myself too, mm -hmm. I said, oh, this is weird, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but I, I want to come back to these threads around, and I think you did a really good job talking about the transformative energy of music and sound, both in general, in terms of emotions, but also for you and how it helped you work through some of your emotions and begin to deal with your insecurities. Just to say it, um, I like that you said you had insecurities. I still have insecurities. <laughs> and I think, you know, from my studies on stress, uh, one of the things that I, I know for sure is when there's lack of security, the brain naturally fires up more, right? So, so I like these transformative state shifting practices. Like this is part of how humans work. Like how do we work? Okay, if we're insecure, yeah, we're gonna become more hypervigilant. Um, we can calm that through sound, through community, through touch, through different outside activities, exercise, sitting in a tree. There's so many ways we can mm -hmm. change states, right? I've been thinking about that this past week actually that the profundity of being able to shift one state. Mm -hmm. Like if I know how to shift my state in any moment, I'm okay, mm -hmm. right? It's when I can't shift my state or I can't see and understand my state. So I really like that you are presencing that with music. Mm -hmm. um, I wanna turn back towards your father really. Mm -hmm. and, and I guess maybe that's tied into the emotions. And yeah. one of the questions I have about fathering is first of all there's no perfect fathers right nobody's nobody's perfect some some do it better than others and it turns out that fathering and the investment of fathers is a precarious thing in mm. in human life mm -hmm. you know it's not a guaranteed and and some do it well some don't some do it part of the time and don't other times but i'm kind of curious 
how did your father invest in you and in what ways was he able to invest in you? And I'm also hearing that there's definitely some limitations there and you're welcome to talk about those and name those and what Mm -hmm. that's like to be on the child side or the growing up into the world side of being with a father who didn't necessarily do it that well. Do you often make people cry on this show yet? <laughs> I'm going to cry talking about it. It's happened here and there. Um, yeah. <clears throat> my father, well, <clears throat> I certainly had the thought that he loved me. I never thought that he didn't love me, but... <clears throat> Maybe that was a little bit messed up, too, in a way, because it gave me a skewed sense of what love is. And I think you're right that, um, you know, as an adult, I have come to terms with that my father did the best he could with what he had and what he grew up with and what his parents gave him and the culture at the time and and all of that. Um, That helps to know that. That doesn't totally do the healing of the inner child I still have to be with the hurt child that got generated by my father's actions but my adult mind now knows that he did the best he could with what he had but for me it definitely wasn't enough and I've had um, I suppose I'd say therapists (laughs) say that it can be confusing in to have someone show up a little bit. In some ways, it can be more confusing than not at all because you ha- you think they're there, but I've been told that he was neglectful. And when I say that, it, it resonates as true in me. Mm-hmm. He wasn't there enough. I feel like the greatest things I got from my father were through absorption, not so much through direct, direct contribution. I remember him trying to help me fill out some college applications. This is obviously later, but I remember that so clearly. But that that was kind of the end of the road. Like, here, let me help you get these and then I was on my own at the college level. Earlier on, I think, you know, what was it, uh, early 60s, mid-60s? I was born in the mid-60s, so 60s, early 70s when I was really young. And I think it was this time in his life that drove him to later become a born-again Christian. <laughs> he, I think he got into a lot of partying and they had these successful clothing businesses called the Hobnob and the Getaway. And I think he just wasn't around a lot when my mom and him were together. And so he was kind of like a larger than life figure, I think, who would like kind of breeze in. And he was a very, char- is a charismatic person. So mm-hmm. I think he kind of created this larger than life and maybe a little bit untouchable sounds like he was remote, like he was sort of there, but more not really present with you and your experience or no. able to 
And, and so were drugs, was drugs in the way at that time, late 60s? And, or was it all just professional interest and ambition? I don't really know that level of it. But yeah, I mean, I think like, you know, marijuana was considered a drug back then. So <laughs> yes, it definitely still is a drug. Drugs and alcohol, you know, drugs and alcohol. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, so I yeah. think he was, he was be kind of into being the life of the party. And, but I, I feel like it was a cultural time where that was very normal for the man the husband to be the worker, be the, go out and make the money and come home and be distant and, and exhausted and whatever he was. I'm not saying everybody had that, but I, I do feel like there was some cultural support for that. And then when he, they got divorced, he kind of hit bottom <laughs> with all of that and became a born again Christian. Still born again? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah? <laughs> Big time. Uh-huh. Born again Christian, Republican, Trump lover. Yeah, and then I think that he, let's put it this way, he started another family, and gosh, in sometime maybe in my 40s, I saw him interacting with my half-brother from the second family, and I was like, oh, you know, I, he gave everything to this son. And he had three daughters with my mother. And I think, partially, he didn't know what the heck to do with us women. I don't think he knew what to do with us. And he was much younger also. How old was he when you were born? Normal to the time. 25. You know, what's, yeah, exactly. Something like that. Pretty young. Exactly. A lot of people have children later now. Yeah, so he, he really showed up for, for my half-brother, like, every step of the way, you know, what are you going to do with your life? How can we get you there? He, they lived in Florida and he went and spent like a month in Chicago with my half brother, trying to help him launch his chef career there, like lived with him, got him, got him set up an apartment, like all of this. And this is mm -hmm. what, you know, my half brother wanted to do. He wanted to be a chef at that time. He's just like, you know, really invested. It was painful to see, but it was also informative. Like, I do think it had something to do with the gender, honestly. I grew up with brothers, and I have a couple daughters, um, but it was it was out of my zone of familiarity. Like, like wow, this is a lot of doll playing going on right now. <laughs> and, and you know, I've come to just you know, I've come to have very positive feelings about being the father of daughters. And occasionally I'll, I'll, I'll miss a certain kind of like activity I would ascribe to having a son, but, but yeah, so there you are and you see this and you, you have an explanation, but I'm also, and I'm, and I'm kind of hearing this in the music and I don't want to be too harsh with my, my, my language here, but did you feel abandoned? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, my mother was not equipped to help me sort out how to be in the world because she was mm -hmm. raised in an era where some women were starting to get jobs and she had jobs little jobs but mostly the majority of women were still expected to be housewives and by the time I was a young adult women were more 
entering career fields and not just automatically getting married and starting families. And um, my mother didn't know how to support me in picking a college or picking a career or sorting out what a good future for me might be. And that was later that, you know, I definitely felt abandoned by my father a lot earlier than that. Yeah, I think abandonment is a huge piece of that inner insecurity. Wow. Well, well, thank you for uh, sharing that part of your, you know, your relationship. If I don't know where your relationship is at today, but that, you know, that's not very related relationship. You know, there's some, there's some, there's some missing pieces in terms of, you know, the power of attention, you know, just simple attention. I'm going to look at you. I'm going to see you. I'm going to be here. Mm-hmm. We're going to just be here together. And I get all those generational things, um, but I have a lot of empathy for for that deep part of our of the child human in particular that's looking to the world to be found in order to find themselves. So, so what's your relationship like today? And were you able to construct a level of communication with the kind of truth you have right here, right now with me? You know, have you been able to build some level of honesty and communication with your father at this point? To speak to the present, I'll say one thing about the past that I also kind of noticed or recognized, particularly when during this time that I keep referring to when I started to leave, leave home and strike out on my own. And I think that's a really big mm-hmm. sore spot for me where father was absent. Is that at that point I was not a born again Christian. And it was so prevalent and in the forefront of his world. Um, I think that was another like huge point of like missed connection. Like he didn't know how to hold space for someone who wasn't in his religion. So I guess I say that because I think that generated just so much distance over the years. Just not knowing how to, and then look what I became. I mean, I literally in his mind worship false gods. I have thought many times in my early 20s that he he doesn't call me because he doesn't want to be confronted with the idea that I'm no longer a born-again Christian, that I will go to hell in the rapture. He's that serious about it. I don't know if he directly thinks that, but I had the thought that he was thinking that. And he certainly holds those belief systems. I don't know if he was holding that about me specifically, but I had that wonderment. Yeah, he believes in the rapture. They showed movies of the rapture when I was a kid and born-again Christian of like half the population that didn't believe in mm-hmm. Jesus Christ as their one and only Lord and Savior just suddenly disappearing from the earth. Yeah, it was kind of some brain, brainwashing there. but um, It's a pretty intense story. Oh, I was just ho- horrified that my mother was going to go, that I was going to go to heaven in the rapture and I was going to be torn from the breast of my loving mother who was not a born-again mm-hmm. Christian. Mm-hmm. So there was that piece. But, um, you know, so I went, I kind of went off the rails, I say, in any sense of convention, let alone religiously. So even for unconventional people, I went a bit far off the spectrum of convention. So I think that was really 
hard for my father to relate to or know how to relate to, um, just guessing. So mm -hmm. there just wasn't a lot of points of connection. And I think there was just like this fundamental place where we, we have the belief that we love each other, but we don't have much of a relationship. I've, I tried over the past few years to generate more of a relationship with him. It's been a tricky time. I do feel that Trump managed to drive yet another nail of division, like literally the, you know, the day Trump was elected for office and I had a phone call with my father and it was a very intense, strange conversation. I feel like he stepped another, even another step back. So um, I try occasionally <laughs> to bridge that gap and like, well, what can we talk about? We can't talk about religion. We can't talk about politics. We can't really talk about my career path because it's very weird. We can talk about music as long as I don't talk about the world side or indigenous culture side or sacred music of other cultures side or kirtan or anything like that. We can talk about music generically. So um, that's a point of reference that we find. Um, we can talk about like jobs because mainstream yeah. stuff. So we try to find, yeah, we talk about the weather, quite honestly. You know, there's just a weird thing with blood family, right? It's, it's like, I feel compelled to have some kind of thread of connection to my blood father. Yeah, I, I, I feel that. I think that's pretty common. I think there are some really extreme situations where you can't, but I think at some level, dealing with our, our birth parents like every single human has to reckon with. I do that by talking about the weather with my father once every three to six months. And that's better than nothing, honestly. And it's, it's not enough, but, you know, and it's, I, I've had other, you know, male figures come in and. That's just where I was going. Because, the, you know, the other side to wounds is is that there becomes a uh, a sensitivity towards um self-correction or recovery like one of the things that i found doing this this season on fathers it just continues to blow my mind is there's an innate knowing and seeking that tends to happen you know there's there's an orienting and when certain you know expected systems biological father for instance doesn't provide meat or 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 touch the the child you know in this case in the ways that they're looking for there's a natural seeking outwards um, I do have to say one thing and it does kind of upset me and I think it's problematic and I think it's also indicative of being human is this this kind of idea that our ideological part of our consciousness really can get in the way of our relationships you know it's it's just such a tough thing <laughs> you know these like we have these beliefs we have this capacity to you know make our best model and understanding of what this world is and and what it what this whole story is about and and yet we can become so convinced in it that we can lose sight and become narrowed and limited so that does that does trigger me and i did want to say that in response to you know your personal story that you've been sharing oh it's so sad it's so sad like that the, he would let like in particular like the election oh my god i mean i don't know i i felt sad about that 
Not, not just that we have different beliefs, but that that would get in the way. You know, I, I asked him that day, well, how do you feel about a president? You know, the, the, the grabbing comment. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, the women grabbing women. That was really big <laughs> when he was first elected. So much has happened for since you and then. a lot of people. Absolutely. We've all yep. forgotten about it. But I was like, how do you feel about that? You're that you have daughters and that your president feels comfortable, like reaching out and grabbing a woman without her permission. And he's very Italian. He says, and my birth name is Nina. He says, Nina, that's just locker talk. You know, the standard <laughs> locker talk comment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he goes on Try about to it. Diminish but, it. Like, I know. It's sad, like, okay, don't pull away, but like there are other points of connection. And I do feel like there are moments that my father and I can have, take away the past, our personal past, take away like even the abandonment, take away how he was or wasn't there, take away the religion, take away the politics. I definitely have felt moments in my adult life where it's just two hearts, Mm. And there's no politics and there's no religion and there's there's no abandonment past. It's just mm. two humans and two hearts. How do you find that? How does that happen? That's a good question. Again, it's this weird thing where it's like he didn't love me enough to show up for me in the way that I needed. But I do feel that and I feel like that was like a lack of capacity or a lack of ability. But the love, I, he probably wishes he could have. I think the love was always there. Mm-hmm. And so if you're able to tap into that, even if it's the smallest thread amongst all the threads, I always loved my father even when I hated him. You know, so there's like that threat, like somehow we both are willing at some moments to tap into that thread. And usually it comes in like some form of a mundane conversation. Like if we can find a conversation that doesn't totally light us up in these really difficult ideologies and emotions, then just talking about commercial music or talking about a job or uh, if it doesn't upset us then we can just start to sink into that little tiny thread that is just always Mm -hmm. been there that's love Mm -hmm. and then you just feel that you're talking about a job but you feel love yeah that's sweet i like hearing that it's a nice little bit of redemption in it yeah you know when there's gaps usually there's some kind of ways in which that gets met somehow someone else shows up you Mm. know there's a mentor there's an uncle there's someone is there one or two people that were helpful for you you know it took a long time but yes and there were there were little bits along the way for sure sometimes I had that mirrored to me in some of my college teachers my male Mm -hmm. teachers um but a lifelong friend showed up in my like early to mid thirties. He had a deep understanding of where I was at at the time, which was 
um, that was kind of the the thick of my my deepest uh, explorations into spirituality. And um, when I became a, I was a nomad at the time, so I didn't live, I didn't live anywhere. I lived in vans and tents and other people's homes. And I did that for about six or seven years. Wow. And I did that because I felt, because I was so honestly um, disillusioned by our culture. And I didn't have that guiding hand helping me like find a career path. And I, when I would look down those career paths myself without help, it would just, I just didn't understand how this was going to make me a thriving human being to like, you know, have an office job. I didn't get it. I didn't get how that was going to make me be an alive person. So I think I just started on this path of this little tug in my heart and I wanted I gave space to kind of follow these little tugs see where they led and um so I I so I was on this kind of musical nomadic path for a while and uh, I didn't have a lot of mirroring reflecting like the okayness of this or the depth of it or and he He's someone who deeply saw me and deeply held presence, just very spacious, loving presence for this part of me that wouldn't be readily understood maybe by convention. He was unconventional and he was able to validate what I was already discovering and experiencing and that absolutely did change my life. There's no question. That's beautiful. Having having someone witness me at the deepest level and, and validate it. So we crossed paths briefly at a party in the late 90s. I think I've told you this. I know you don't remember this. Oh, no, because particularly I, I particularly didn't do time back then. So I have no sense of <laughs> years related to anything. <laughs> Was that when you were on the road uh, doing nomad life? I couldn't exactly tell you since I don't really <laughs> probably <laughs> do time. I can tell do you time. this. I you graduated start? from college in 92. So I probably was. When did you start doing time? Oh, I still struggle with time. I don't do good with tracking years, like a year something happened. Mm-hmm. If I need to show up at noon, I can do that, but on a day. But like in terms of tracking when years, <laughs> I, I, probably right, in the past right. couple of years, I can do that more. I can tell you exactly what happened in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> that definitely put time on the map. I'll tell you that. If it wasn't before that. And, and in a way, it was just before 2020 and after 2020 anyway. <laughs> so <laughs> totally for everybody, right? It feels that way. I mean, it's, you know, the biggest collective initiation, you know, if yes. we want to call it that. So, okay. So this, this, person, this man who came into your life, he wasn't necessarily bridging you into the world that you didn't know how to orient towards, right? Because one of the things I'm hearing is, oh, it wasn't just the absence of, of father and presence. It was the teaching and the opportunity for teaching 
that your father did not provide that left you coming into why we've been focusing on this adult transition so much kind of at a loss you know like what totally you know without an imagination without a toehold into whatever the normal things might have been for you know had he been more invested in you know this is how we come along this is how you find your work career right you know there's one philosophy that says your mother helps you really solidify your relationship with yourself and your father helps you solidify your relationship to the world whether that's true or not but i kind of get it because you know you're you're grown in your mother's womb <laughs> so there's a selfness to that and when you come out of your mother your first relationship with anything outside of being in your mother's body is your father so it's like your first outer relationship so yes i feel that i didn't have guidance and then i was somebody who needed extra guidance even in you know, in the realm of somebody needing guidance. I needed extra guidance. I was uh, hyperactive as a child or ADHD, they call it now. And, you know, an extremely sensitive female. So I just needed extra, like, how do I navigate being this weird, sensitive female person in this having to go get a career and a job? Yeah, I really needed help that I didn't have. I so feel you on that, that feeling of sensitive, somewhat weird, and not necessarily cognitively clear about how to find one's way into life. Like I'm still, it's still an ongoing, okay, all right, I'm here. How do I, <laughs> That's kind of comforting for me to hear done? that in a weird way. No, it, to it, it, it totally is. And, and you know, when we look at stress or when I look at stress, it, it's a total natural outcropping of, or a natural consequence to, to, you know, a lack of security, right? So yes. if there's not that kind of contact, and then you're saying on top of that, you know, I, I'm dealing with a, a, a very strongly born again, Christian culture who even gets that less because the ideology is in the way. And I feel you on that. And in a way it's, um, it's kind of predictable in a way, you know, if you put all those factors together, a sensitive child, a, 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 a religion that a religious approach, not a religion, but a religious approach that might limit certain kind of human relationship and attunement to relationship. And then you put a, a masculine culture on that that's not a, even attuned on top of that. It makes sense. That's some good languaging there for all of that. Yeah. You know, and I feel like there's something I've been wanting to language in this like the fundamental level of insecurity that every human is born with, you know, is our own mortality. And there are some cultures that help guide a human to feel a, and be in relationship with those, with the greater forces of aliveness that extend past our human bodies. So that fundamental fear of death or that, you know, that fundamental um, insecurity is that there's a relationship that heals that part or holds that part. Or, and that is partly what I felt like, like the born again Christian world wasn't giving me that. Mm -hmm. And my father and my mother couldn't help me come 
reconcile that deepest, deepest part of myself. My current thinking right now is there is an unwillingness to accept that small, very mortal part of our lives, our biological condition, if you will. And, and there's a lot of bypassing that goes on all the time in health fields and psychology and spirituality that's basically buffering this raw, direct experience of being a biological being and all the insecurities that come along with that. Right? Exactly. So we're trying to condition ourselves and buffer ourselves around that. Yeah, our culture is basically built on that. Yeah, culture and nature, right? So that you can see the dynamic between human culture and nature all the time. And so this, 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 this inability to even sense that tender, mortal place in a consistent way. Um, and, and then yet being aware of it and feeling it. So I, I've just exactly. loved so much of what you're saying around that and, and this arrival at, huh, okay, this is, you know, my individual experience, but objectively this is our condition. And I can, mm -hmm. I can oscillate between those two things in order to build both empathy for this most vulnerable, tender part of myself and context for what the hell I've been through. Right. And Beautiful. so I'm, Very well wonder said. I'm, I'm wondering as a way to kind of find our way towards wrapping up here, because I mm -hmm. think we could probably talk for another hour. If you found a song in your journey that br has brought you to that relationship, or if there's something. <laughs> All of them. <laughs> All of the ones I wrote. <laughs> okay. Is there one that comes to mind? Freedom, a song called Freedom. That you wrote? Uh-huh. And some of the lines go like... Come to realize that even freedom has a price. It requires us to know what we want from this life. And if we falter in our dreams, if we doubt the path that seems the best to be expressed as this life... We might lose our chance to live life the enlightened way. But how would we know how to choose the experiences divine intelligence would play? How would we know to choose to ride the mystic dragon through the thunder? To sit upon the shore and watch the hurricane storm tear us asunder. How will we know to choose? I choose to heal. I choose to be whole. I choose to believe the quiet whisper in my heart is real. So what you gonna do with your freedom? Oh, it's beautiful. Now I'm crying. <laughs> it might be the first time I've cried on the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for being with me today and all the reflection and music you brought to the show. Thank you for having me. It's been a very rich experience. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for joining us today. Please follow us on your favorite streaming platform and share our podcast with your community and friends. 
All music is composed by the incredible Chase Jackson at chasejacksonmusic.com. To learn more about this show, our guest, as well as Jeffrey and his work helping people find peace with their human nature, go to howhumanswork.us.com.